From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. And I'm Khalid Bendib. This week we'll spend the hour discussing Turkey's military invasion of the Kurdish enclave of Afrin in northwestern Syria with Dr. Cengiz Gunas, an associate lecturer at the Open University in the UK. Stay with us. On January 20th, Turkey launched the so-called Operation Olive Branch in the northern Syrian enclave of Afrin. Turkish ground troops crossed the border into Syria alongside thousands of Turkey-backed Syrian rebels. The Turkish government has stated that its goal is to root out an armed militia called the People's Protection Units, YPG which it views as a threat to its security. Turkey sees the YPG as an extension of the banned Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, which has struggled for the rights of the Kurdish people in Turkey for more than three decades. After two months of fighting, on March 18th, Turkey announced that the city of Afrin has been taken and Turkish President Erdogan suggested that the current military campaign could be extended to other Kurdish-led border areas east of Afrin in Syria. Vomina producer Shahram Agamir spoke with Dr. Cengiz Gunes, who is an associate lecturer at the Open University in the UK, about the Turkish invasion of the Kurdish enclave of Afrin in northwestern Syria. The Turkish operation began in 20th of January 2018, and it continued for around two months, with Afrin town falling to the control of Turkish army and its affiliated militias on 17th of March. Um, Afrin is a Kurdish-majority region in northwestern part of Syria, it is disconnected from other Kurdish populated regions. So in a way, it's an enclave. And a large number of Kurdish forces have left the area on 18th of March. Some have retreated to the rural areas of Afrin. Others have gone to other Kurdish-controlled regions. At the moment, there is a kind of hit-and-run attacks conducted by Kurdish uh, forces. The conflict is going on in Afrin but in a much more reduced capacity. And given the Russian backing to Turkey's action and the silence of the international community and its failure to strongly condemn the Turkish action in Afrin, in a way it was expected that Afrin would fall. But I personally wasn't expecting that the People's Protection Units, the YPG, would withdraw from the Afrin city. I was expecting them to engage with the Turkish army and the Turkish-affiliated groups in battle in the urban areas. But they have decided against it because it would have resulted in a large number of casualties. And also uh, the Turkish attacks targeted civilians before and they uh, have also destroyed the vital infrastructure of the region, the water plants and schools and hospitals. Afrin was largely spared from the conflict until the Turkish invasion, and it was a relatively peaceful region. It received also internally displaced people from the neighboring areas of Syria. So in a way, it was a kind of a symbol of coexistence in Syria. 
because it was disconnected from other areas under the control of the Kurdish-led forces, it was quite vulnerable area for an attack. And Turkey exploited it to its advantage. Before the Turkish invasion, Afrin was home to more than 300,000 people. More than a third of the population was internally displaced. The region had been a destination for Syrians who had been displaced by the war. 60% of the population of Afrin region had been already in need of humanitarian aid before the latest violence. An estimated 150,000 people have been displaced following Turkey's capture of the northern Syrian city of Afrin. What can you tell us about the plight of these people? There is a humanitarian crisis brewing in Afrin. Previously, the UN called for a ceasefire so that aid can reach the people. And recently, the International Committee of the Red Cross called for access to the region so that it can distribute aid to the civilians trapped there. In terms of the numbers who have left Afrin and who are now displaced, I think most of them went to Kurdish areas such as Tal Rifat. And I think the capacity of these areas to host such a large number of displaced people is not very high. But at least there is aid that is reaching them because the agencies have access to those areas. So there are two issues. One is the plight of those people who have been displaced. And the other issue is the people who have remained, who could not uh, leave Afrin. Those people, they need help with immediate needs uh, because the infrastructure has been destroyed. So there's no like running water. Services have been affected. The worry is that the longer the Turkish control, the local population will suffer more. And it seems that Turkey is unwilling to enable access to those areas other than its own Red Cross, which the Kurds don't really trust. So there is uh, also widespread looting by the Turkish-backed forces. Uh, They're kind of stealing livestock, tractors, etc. And there are also instances of mistreatment of civilians. And there is instances where the Turkish-backed forces are torturing Kurds. This has circulated through Twitter. So there is a real worry that all Kurds in Afrin will become displaced and that Turkey will use Afrin to settle Syrian refugees who are currently in Turkey. This invasion of Afrin happened around the same time as the Kurdish population were getting ready to celebrate Nowruz, the new year. It's almost like a double whammy to make people go through this pain and agony on the eve of their celebration of new year. Actually, one of the actions that they have taken was to destroy the statue of Kawa the blacksmith, who in the Kurdish narrative of Nowruz is the main character who kind of organizes a rebellion against the Assyrians, King Dehak. In a way, they are destroying the symbols of Kurdish identity and they are targeting, in a symbolic way, Kurds' attempt to assert their identity. The Turkish military and their allies, Syrian rebels, they seem to consist of thousands of fighters who are referred to as the Free Syrian Army. Who are these people and what is their political and ideological makeup? These groups that were fighting in Syria and that did receive help from Turkey 
But what happened was Turkey kind of brought them together again and constituted them in an army. These are groups which are mainly Turkmen uh, forces and also uh, groups that are linked to the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria and that were previously part of other Islamist factions or part of the Free Syria Army. There are many groups, groups that were previously part of the Nureddin Zengi Brigade. So these are the Turkmans and they have been in the news uh, because of their very harsh treatment of certain people, the Sunni Islamist groups, and but they have been kind of rehabilitated by Turkey and presented again as kind of a moderate force that's going to fight against the Kurds because for Turkey the Kurds are a terrorist group the YPG especially, and also they are saying that they will take up a fight against the Islamist forces in Idlib, but uh, we don't know yet whether that will happen or not. Cengiz, let's talk about this issue of why Afrin, and what were the reasons behind the Turkish military invasion of Afrin, and why now? That's an interesting uh, question. Afrin, as I mentioned before, is isolated from other Kurdish areas. So in a way, it's an easy target. But the immediate reason, the pretext, was the U.S. announcement that it is training a new border force to protect areas that its Kurdish and Arab allies control. This announcement was later retracted. But Turkey was not satisfied with subsequent statements and as a result decided to take action to dislodge Kurdish forces in Syria. So that's the kind of immediate reason given. But we know that Turkey has always maintained a hostile attitude towards the Kurds in Syria. And the new Kurdish-led autonomous entity that came into being in July uh, 2012 Turkey sees Kurdish autonomy as a threat to its national security and feels that its consolidation, which the American statement hinted at, will change the game in Kurds' favor forever. Turkey sees its Kurdish movement, the PKK, and Syria's Kurdish movement as essentially one and the same. And for Turkey, they are a terrorist movement. And Turkey has done everything it can to prevent the Kurds in Syria gaining more international recognition. Turkey has done everything it can to stop Kurdish autonomy succeeding. It kind of facilitated the transfer of fighters to northern Syria. Uh, Most of the people who have ended up in ISIS have arrived in Syria via Turkey. It kind of turned a blind eye to transportation of the jihadists because it knew that Kurdish forces would become uh, the ISIS's adversary through ISIS. Turkey will prevent the Kurds gaining recognition or more power. So when the U.S. began working with the Kurdish forces in order to defeat the ISIS, Turkey again was not very happy about that at all. And Erdogan many times complained that the U.S. was supplying weapons to the Kurdish forces and that was unacceptable and the U.S. should stop doing that. Such statements were very, very frequent. And Turkey applied diplomatic pressure on the U.S. to stop working with the Kurdish forces. And this pressure was 
particularly intense, especially at the start of the new Trump administration. When Turkey couldn't succeed, Turkey started to cultivate stronger ties with Russia. And through allying itself with Russia, strengthen its position in Syria and stop the Kurds gaining recognition through its actions. Because if Turkey is stronger on the ground, then it can do more to prevent Kurds gaining recognition. And its ties with Russia enabled Turkey to do that. Turkey have also consistently opposed the inclusion of Kurdish-led administration in the international peace conferences, uh, such as the Geneva talks. And it's through diplomacy, through the leverage it gained, Turkey has uh, tried to prevent Kurds gaining recognition in Syria and gaining acceptance and it hasn't managed to prevent the Kurds consolidating their de facto autonomy. And only action that was left for Turkey to do was to take military action. That's what it did. What I've mentioned are directly related to Turkey's attitudes towards Kurds in Syria, but there's also a domestic factor. As you know, Erdogan reformed Turkey's political regime and introduced an executive-style presidency. This was done with the support of the Nationalist Party, the Nationalist Action Party. And he has continued to work with the Nationalist Action Party and will take part in the forthcoming elections, which are currently scheduled for 2019. And Erdogan is going to take in that election within a block Afrin operation helps Erdogan to consolidate its Turkish nationalist base and use the appeal of Turkish nationalism to mobilize voters. And keep its alliance of convenience, actually, with this party. There are people who say it's an alliance of convenience, but there is much more in common between the Nationalist Action Party and Erdogan because both uh, accept the importance of religion in Turkish national identity. So in a way, Erdogan is more religious Mm. than nationalist, but... And both new liberal parties too, right? Yes, yes, in terms of economics. Opposition to the Kurds enables Erdogan to unify the Turkish nationalist base Mm. and also consolidate it. He presents himself as the person who will defeat the Kurds or who has taken all the necessary actions to defeat the Kurds. Mm. So whether he will end up defeating the Kurds in Syria and in Turkey, we don't know. But this is what he is trying to do. Shortly after the fall of Afrin, in a speech in Ankara, Turkish President Erdogan said the military operation will continue until the terror corridor, as he calls it, through Manbij, Ain al-Arab, which is the same as Kobani, and Tal Abiyad. How likely is that scenario? What is the end game of the Turkish state in Syria? You kind of mentioned that. But one would expect that President Erdogan has abandoned his earlier plans for Syria and given up his ambitions of Turkey becoming the regional hegemon, or has he not? I think he hasn't given up on that attempt to become the regional hegemon. Turkey wants to be a strong player in Syria and will expand its control to achieve that. 
in a way, it will do everything it can to increase its territorial control in Syria. Initially, Turkey saw the Arab Spring as an opportunity to extend its sphere of influence and build regimes that are similar to its own. It tried to impose its model of Islamic conservative democracy, if you like, on the rest of the countries in the region. It was keen to also empower and support similar groups such as the, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And it formed very close ties with the Muslim Brotherhood and the FSA, the Free Syria Army in Syria as well. Creating such similar regimes, it thought that the region will become politically more like Turkey. Now, in Syria, the end game was to create a Sunni-dominated regime under groups that are close to Erdogan ideologically. When it became clear that Assad regime is not going to be defeated militarily, essentially after Russia began operating in Syria, and when it became clear that the Kurdish actors are becoming more powerful as a result of the civil war, Turkey began to look for ways that it can uh, cut its losses. At the moment, the policy seems to be revolving around minimizing the gains that the Kurds will get in Syria. And having a foothold in Syria in the post-conflict yes, era, right? definitely, yes. Because it wants to be able to support the groups that it built up, the Sunni-dominated opposition, in order to kind of have a say at the end, if and when a peace process uh, starts. Erdogan still, from time to time, makes statements about restoring Turkey's lost influence in the region. And he goes back to the Ottoman times and presents those times as a golden age of Turkish power and dominance. So he wants to recreate the influence the Ottoman Empire enjoyed and forge ties with the neighboring countries on the basis of uh, Islamic solidarity. That's his kind of ideological objectives. I think he's aware that it's not going to be very easy to achieve those. And in order to remain a meaningful actor, it needs to dislodge the Kurdish uh, forces. The areas that Turkey wants to control are also areas that the Kurds either have control or want to control as well. And the areas to the east of Euphrates River those areas alongside the border with Turkey are all under the control of the Syrian Democratic Forces. This is the umbrella organization of which the YPG is a main part, is a Kurdish-led forces. This area is also where America operates and America have bases and personnel there. So Mam Beach, for example, is in the west of the river Euphrates, and it has been drawing some attention, especially in the past few weeks, because Erdogan is saying that the Kurdish uh, forces should leave Mambij. And the official line is that the Kurdish forces who took part in capturing Mambij have actually left the area. But now there is a civilian-controlled administration, which is part of the Kurdish-led autonomous region. So Turkey wants to eliminate that administration to create its own administration. There was a statement by Turkish Foreign Minister Mevlut Çavuşoğlu, and he said that America and Turkey has reached agreement on the future management of Mambij. 
but later on he kind of withdrew the statement and there seems to be still a dialogue but at the moment there isn't uh, a clear solution presented what turkey wants is that part of kurdish held territory to be given to either a turkish led force or to Turkey to have influence in that area. And Turkey is presenting an argument that the Kurds have kind of came over to Arab populated areas and they are overtaking those areas, they're creating displacement, and, you know, in a way they are displacing Arabs and settling Kurds and such. There's a lot of claims and a lot of accusations like that, but the people that were in Mambich are still there. This displacement isn't happening and the groups that have been cooperating together in these administrations and they are taking part in the management or the governance of the region. I think Turkey will try to use force to dislodge Kurdish forces in Mambich and other areas. But it's not going to be as easy because the U.S. is there. So it depends on what the U.S. will do. In Afrin, the U.S. did not have any forces there and did not provide support or air defenses against attacks in Afrin. But in other areas that the Kurds of the Kurdish-led coalition controls, the U.S. is based on providing protection so it's going to be a lot more difficult than Afrin if Turkey was to try to dislodge the Kurdish forces. The U.S. and Turkish governments have been at odds over the YPG militias. While the U.S. military officials have regarded this group as an essential partner, the Turkish government, as you mentioned, states that the Kurdish Democratic Union Party, PYD, and their YPG militias are closely linked to PKK. At this juncture, how would you characterize the U.S.-Turkey relations? And is there a reason for the United States not to abandon the Kurds? I mean, it has done it in the past. I mean, if you look yes, at different history I mean, of Kurds... It's and possible the that the U.S. will abandon the Kurds. It depends on what the U.S. wants to do in Syria, basically. Now, the initial objective was to defeat ISIS, that's more or less has been done. Exactly. But now the idea being expressed in these policy circles is that we need to create a system where ISIS or ISIS-like entities are not recreating themselves or are not coming back. And for that, you need to have a good governance, you need to have institutions that operate. And so far, US seems to be committed to that goal. If you want to have stability in the region long term, then U.S. needs to kind of stay in there for a while and to be part of efforts to stabilize the region. Turkey wants to prevent the U.S.'s engagement in the region. If the U.S. is to stay there, it says it can become the partner of the U.S. and Turkey will achieve what the Kurds are trying to achieve. Turkey and the U.S. has a long alliance, a long established relations. And for the U.S. it's difficult to ignore Turkey's request. They need to 
keep Turkey on board and they need to work with Turkey. The U.S.'s preferred option would be to keep Turkey on board, but also not abandon the Kurds. But what Turkey is pushing for is for the U.S. to abandon Kurds. And Turkey is using its newly established ties with Russia as a blackmail as well. It says, in a way, if you don't allow me to achieve what I want, I will find other ways to do it. They did make an arrangement with Russians, as you mentioned, over Afrin. Yeah, exactly. In order to conduct airstrikes, Turkey had to get the permission of Russia. And Russia gave that permission. And as a result of that, Turkey used air force to attack Kurdish positions, to destroy infrastructure cause a lot of damage to the Kurdish forces. And it couldn't have done that without Russia. And Russia is allowing that because essentially Russia wants to weaken the U.S. Now, this is the contradictory part. Now, Turkey is in a way being part of a effort to weaken the U.S. in Syria. But at the same time, By doing that, it is uh, strengthening Russia, which is kind of an adversary of the U.S. in the region. Because Erdogan is very pragmatic, he can change course very easily. He did that in the past, he can do that in the future. He was uh, very good friends with Assad, you know, Erdogan's and Assad's were taking their summer holidays together. Then suddenly after the break out of the conflict, he did a U-turn and start supporting the opposition to get rid of Assad. And in the past few months, there were indications that Turkey can come to some kind of a coexistence with Assad, in some level accept or recognize Assad's regime. But as how it will do that, uh, we don't know. They want to re-establish ties with with Assad, but it seems that at the moment that the basis of that relationship will be very, very narrow and presumably will be to prevent the Kurdish autonomy being consolidated. So when we look at the regional picture and when we look at what the US is trying to achieve in the region, it gets further complicated uh, because one of the problems for the U.S. is influence of Iran in Syria. And Iran is likely to maintain its influence or even increase it. And that's a big problem for the U.S. because it threatens Israel's security. So in a way, it can draw Israel into the conflict as well in order to prevent Iran or Iran-backed groups becoming more influential. Iran's growing influence will also influence what Saudis do. Saudis are not going to be very happy with Iran gaining more influence. So the Saudi Arabia will also feel threatened. For keeping the regional balance, America needs to remain in Syria. And in order to remain in Syria, I think it needs to keep its ties with the Kurds. So I don't expect America to give up on Kurds uh, very soon. But at the same time, we need to be mindful that 
the pressure that Turkey is applying can influence U.S. decisions, but it depends on whether America can find a, a way where Turkey can feel secure, but without destroying the Kurds. At the moment, at least, it seems like an impossible task. But also, we have to look at the likely impact that Turkish invasion, a larger scale invasion of uh, Kurdish held territories will have on the Kurdish question in Turkey. The conflict in Turkey has been accelerating, but it will further accelerate this conflict and it will even lead to some kind of a civil war where just individuals or civilians just kill each other in Turkey. Any large-scale Turkish invasion of Kurdish-held territory in Syria will likely to further accelerate the Kurdish conflict in Turkey and further destabilize the region. So I think that will be one factor in the minds of the policymakers in Turkey when and or if they decide to attack. But when we analyze Erdogan's recent speeches and what he tries to do, or what he says he will do, it's a very worrying scenario because he is saying that he wants to destroy the groups that he thinks are aligned with the PKK. He wants to destroy all Kurdish administrative regions in Syria. He's planning or he's, he says he's planning. He certainly is saying that he is going to conduct an operation inside Iraq against the PKK bases in the Kandil Mountains. So it seems that he's going to accelerate the conflict and and he feels that this is the moment to do something if he's going to do in a way if the Kurdish forces in Syria continue to develop if the Kurdish self-administration in Syria is consolidated that will change the game in Kurds favor forever and Turkey will have to accept the Kurdish autonomy or Kurdish rights in Syria and in Turkey in a way, Turkey will have to come to a cooperation or coexistence with the Kurds on terms that it doesn't wish to accept. That's Dr. Cengiz Gunes speaking with Shahram Agamir about the Turkish invasion of Afrin and the Turkish political and military objectives in Syria. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. In recent speech, Mr. Erdogan said, we are not in a position to continue hosting three and a half million refugees forever. 
will solve the Afrin situation and we would like refugee brothers and sisters to return to their country. That's a quote from him. Also in the early days of the military campaign in Afrin region, he declared at a public rally that Afrin was originally majority Arab and that the enclave would be returned to what he called its rightful owners. But Afrin is predominantly Kurdish and promising to return hundreds of thousands of mainly Arab Syrian refugees to Afrin has led to accusations that Mr. Erdogan's government intends to dilute Afrin's Kurdish makeup, that his government is using demographics to achieve domestic political goals, given the fact that many Turks have concerns about the large number of Syrian refugees in Turkey. And the issue is likely to become a factor in the next election. Is this a credible assessment of what may be happening in terms of the calculus of Afrin and how Mr. Erdogan and his AK party is approaching this issue? Yes, I think that's a, that's a credible assessment. And Erdogan has on many occasions stated and hinted that the Kurdish population will be displaced and will be replaced with Syrian Arab population that is currently in Turkey as refugees. And in Turkey, there is a widespread opposition to the Syrian refugees. A large section of Turks, the view that Turkey is doing too much for the Syrians is quite popular. And Erdogan needs to take the public opinion into account. And he he needs to present himself as someone who is working towards solving uh, that refugee issue. And the invasion of Afrin kind of advances that narrative. So he is saying he's not only destroying the threat of a Kurdish enclave, but he's also solving the refugee issues. In a way, he's trying to kill two birds with one stone. And and to the international forces, he will present it as a part of a final solution to the Syria conflict and will argue that, that such action will relieve the pressure on Turkey. And he may be presenting that to European powers. Yes, exactly. uh, Exactly. This is, I think, one part of the sort of reason why the international organization have been quite silent on Turkey's action. In a way, they don't want to antagonize Erdogan because Erdogan has in the past said that he will uh, open the Turkish borders to Europe so that all the refugees will go to Europe and that will create a huge uproar in Europe and will create big reaction. He knows that. So he's just, he's always playing with that threat. And now he's presenting what he's doing as a solution, as a long-term durable solution. Afrin is a Kurdish majority area and it's been like that for a long time. It's also quite a kind of diverse area. There are Alevi Kurds, there are Yazidi Kurds, Arabs, Armenians, and it's been a symbol of peaceful coexistence. And he wants to destroy that and then present it as a kind of doing something good for all of Syria. He's presenting what he does as an action against Kurdish unilateral action and Kurdish attempts to control a territory that is essentially not theirs and he is presenting his invasion as a move to regain those areas for the benefit of all of Syrians. 
but most people who are in Turkey, most Syrian refugees who are in Turkey, are not from Afrin. So it's an obvious case of displacing the Kurds and replacing them with ethnic Turkmen or Arabs. Afrin was one of the uh, cantons of the de facto autonomous democratic federation of northern Syria, also known by its acronyms DFNS, also known as Rojava, which means the West in Kurdish. The region is undergoing an intriguing experience in exercise of people's power, which has been termed democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism. Can you describe to us what this self-autonomy is and how does it function, particularly when a region is located in a conflict zone and has a pluralistic makeup? This idea of democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism was first developed by Abdullah Öcalan, who is the leader of the PKK and who is currently in jail in Turkey. And essentially, this is a model of autonomy that uh, the PKK has also accepted. And it's about realizing Kurdish rights within the existing states and without the need of creating a separate Kurdish state. Now, democratic autonomy is about decentralization of state power and creating kind of local level governance structures that will engage people in decision-making about issues that concern them. It's not an ethnic form of autonomy. So it's not an autonomy for the Kurds only. It's an autonomy for the all of the region. This idea is actually quite uh, complex and it developed in a very unusual way because Öcalan, as you know, is in prison, so he doesn't have access to books or he cannot write them and send his stuff out. He could only do that through the courts and he presented a lot of defenses. There's parts where there are contradictions and parts where new ideas have been added. So in a way, it's a complicated framework. For decades, Kurdish polity has been dominated by a nationalist discourse and desire to establish a Kurdish national state across the borders established by the 1916 Sykes-Picot Agreement. This model uh, proposed by uh, both PKK in Turkey and Party for Democratic Unity, PYD, in Syria is a departure from that nationalist discourse, isn't it? It's more about creating what they call a model based on anti-capitalism an environmentalist perspective yes, and yeah. democratic institutions and civil rights. Yes. Basically, in Turkey, the PKK has been the dominant group. And during the 70s, 80s and early 90s, it was fighting a guerrilla war. And the aim was to create a Kurdish state that will kind of take land from Turkey, Iran and Syria. In a way, it was a pan kurdist and it constitutionalized Kurdistan as a country, and it was an international colony. And it argued that it needed to organize a national liberation to overthrow the colonial rule and establish a nation state for the Kurds. And through a nation state, it will liberate the Kurds. In a way, all the assimilation, all the repression that the Kurdish people were facing in terms of their culture and politics would be overcome only by a a state. Now, in early 1990s, the idea of establishing a Kurdish state began to lose its appeal and its credibility, if you like, because 
the states that the Kurds were fighting against were far more powerful than the Kurdish movements. And these states were very nationalist. Militarily, they were very strong, authoritarian. The Kurds have so much of a chance to overcome these states. So, and also in Turkey, there was kind of a possibility of a reform and democratization, which could open up for Kurdish political actors and for Kurdish identity to be recognized. Now, at that time, Turkey also indicated that it could be open to a settlement with the PKK and kind of a peace process and accept some Kurdish rights and recognize Kurdish identity and, in a way, for Kurds and Turks to coexist in Turkey. In 1992-95 and in 97, there were a few ceasefires by the PKK, which were aimed at opening, starting a process of peace and resolving the Kurdish question through democracy. And so in a way, from early 1990s, the idea of democratic accommodation of Kurdish rights within the existing states was becoming part of the debate. Now, in 1999, when Öcalan was uh, caught by Turkey, and subsequently he was in prison in Turkey, he began to develop a broader model for accommodating Kurdish rights in Turkey and across the region. And this attempt was formulated around the twin concepts of democratic autonomy and democratic confederalism. Now, democratic autonomy is the state-level solution for the Kurds. So individual Kurdish conflicts will be resolved through establishment of democratic autonomy in Turkey, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran. And that is basically an arrangement between the Kurdish population and the states in in those countries where Kurds obtain their national rights But at the same time, the Kurds accept to remain part of those states. It has many different aspects to it. And some accounts of democratic autonomy have emphasized this anti-capitalist, ecologist side of it. But at the core of this idea is is the accommodation of Kurdish rights within the existing states. And it kind of pushes for the acceptance of Kurdish identity and the rights of Kurdish people and within the states, but the states crucially should provide constitutional guarantees. So the states should remove all obstacles in front of Kurdish language and cultural developments. And there should be like a general democratization of state structures. Now, the Middle East has a very centralized political structure in each country and is a very authoritarian. And... Öcalan thinks that the way state is uh, structured, the way politics is structured needs to change. The society needs to become more dominant in a way. People should organize within associations. He says people should be participating more in the decision making. And he proposes that societal organizations should be established and should be more empowered so that 
the state's dominance over the society is reduced. So in a way, he thinks that will open up space for people to organize themselves democratically and take part in resolving the issues that they face. The societal problem that people face um, can be resolved through participation of everyone and everybody should be part of the the attempt to resolve it. It shouldn't be left to the state. So more emphasis on the notion of direct democracy. Yes, it's a form of direct democracy. So, and he says there should be assemblies, for example. So people should be organized in these assemblies. They should express their views. They should take part in the decision-making. And he thinks that it's possible, this such a system or such a, such a structure is possible if the states are decentralized. So it's a kind of a bottom-up approach. So every village and every neighborhood in a city should have its own assembly. And the people in the village or the neighborhood assembly should discuss their problems and they should elect representatives to represent them at the higher level, at the city level, and then at the regional level, and then at the state level. So it's a kind of a pyramid structure which involves all sorts of cultural groups in the society. So Kurds should have their own kind of self-government and should have their own institutions in these states, but also they should be part of the general management of that state. So Kurds as citizens of Turkey should be represented in the state institutions of Turkey, but also they have their own self-government where they take the decisions about the issues that concerns them. So in a way, that's the democratic autonomy. And it seems to be a more viable solution for our times. And I'm referring to the age of new liberal and global capital. The notion of a nation state in a way, it's is yes. anachronistic today. It belonged to the era of struggle against colonialist powers and the attempt to create a nation-state. Trying to establish a nation-state in this age of global capital, it's somewhat complicated and difficult. It seems like there are other things by virtue of which you can create a more cohesive structure, such as the issues of social justice, environmental justice, gender and ethnic issues, and things like that, where you form other types of solidarities. Yes, indeed. Öcalan himself presents a kind of a history of nationalism where he argues that the idea of every nation having its own state is outdated. In order to have national liberation, we don't need to have a state. We don't need to establish a state. We could. There are other ways which we could achieve that. He kind of presents a detailed analysis of society. And for him, state or the idea of organizing politics through a state is a problematic one because it leads to the enslavement of the society, he says. That the stronger the state, the less freedom the society has. And he is arguing that we need to... uh, rebalance that relationship in favor of the society. So he he doesn't believe in total abolishment of states. What he says is that states should become a minimal state 
where power is decentralized decentralized yes power is decentralized but also as little as possible society should be empowered mm. to make the decisions that it's confronting and there should be a general democratization so for Erdogan, without a democratization of the society and the states the kurdish question could not be resolved and he believes that nation states are part of capitalist development and and that in a way they're there to produce a capitalist relations rather than produce or result in um, liberation of of the people so he believes in an alternative system which he describes as democratic confederalism and this is a situation where institutions from the grassroots are kind of established and in a way it brings the society into existence through institutions that starts from the grassroots level that ends in a higher level so for Erdogan and for the PKK a Kurdish democratic confederalism is a non-state Kurdish entity that exists across different states and that provides representation to the Kurds in these states so in a way Kurds will exist as a nation will be able to recreate themselves as a nation but without a state it's essentially it's about establishing Kurdish self-governing communities that will be autonomous it's proposed as a as a alternative to the nationalist and statist solutions it's a different project yeah it's a yeah. completely different project it's based on promotion of fraternity between different groups and democratic unity of the nations it's a project that is aimed at furthering democracy in society but at it's the same time the way you it's being presented you would take that adjective kurdish out of it right well we need further clarification here in syria for example, this Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, that is not a specifically Kurdish entity. Precisely. That is an entity for everybody in Syria. And every group, Arabs, uh, Turkoman, Chechens, Assyrians, Armenians, Kurds, every group have a right, at least that's how it's presented, have a right to establish their own self-government, to protect their own cultural identity to promote the use of their language you know all those issues that affect or that concerns that specific group they should have a right to organize themselves and provide services in those areas when we look at the sort of the pan-kurdish level so when we look at all kurds in the middle east this democratic confederalism is designed to bring all kurdish self-governments together so democratic autonomy complements democratic confederalism. So Kurds will exist as a group and will remain part of the existing states, but also they will establish institutions that will represent them and that will allow them to constitute themselves as a nation, sort of in an abstract terms. How do you explain the lack of support the Kurds have received from progressives during Turkey's invasion of Afrin? You don't really witness displays of solidarity by the international left. Here you have a member of NATO, with the help of some Islamists and Salafi forces, launching an invasion to crush what you just described, a leftist movement with democratic aspirations. 
But you don't see anything close to the outrage displayed by the left that we normally see in other instances, such as when Israeli military attacks Gaza, you know, in Palestinians. You mentioned the issue of refugees and how Erdogan is playing the refugee card. But does that explain it? The main reason is that among the international kind of progressive forces, that their knowledge of the Kurdish struggle isn't perhaps very well developed. They think the Kurds are just there for themselves. They're just fighting for their own particularistic rights. It's a nationalist project. Nationalism is kind of a bad word. They don't develop as much uh, solidarity with the Kurds. But I just gave you another example of a nationalist project. Yeah. The issue of Palestine, which is rightly so, the left and progressives should be supporting that cause. But of course, it's an international issue. Everyone has a view of the Palestine. There are lots of Palestinian-led or Palestinian-supported organizations. In contrast, there aren't so many such groups or organizations for the Kurds. And I think it's because of the lack of knowledge. I think that's one factor. Another factor is that these states that the Kurds live in have kind of used their means to prevent the development of solidarity towards Kurdish people. For example, Turkey has been consistently describing the Kurdish struggle in Turkey as a terrorism. And that kind of narrative has been accepted by many people. Journalists use the same language that Turkish state use. They give the example of the PKK attacks. They use such attacks as a way of justifying Turkish action. These states have a very sophisticated propaganda apparatus, which they use to prevent Kurds uh, gaining more sympathy. Do you think it has anything to do with the criticism by some leftists of YPG's military cooperation with the U.S.? The YPG came into being in 2011, and it's generally accepted as uh, the kind of armed wing of the PYD. But the people who speak for YPG describe themselves as a force for the whole region, and they don't see themselves as just a representative of a political party. They are the force of the autonomous region, and they protect everyone, so they say. The PYD is currently the dominant political party in Syria, and it was established in 2003 by the former members of the PKK who were from Syria. So the Kurds in Syria who were part of the PKK uh, left the PKK and formed PYD. And the PKK and PYD has a kind of an ideological affiliation. For Kurds in Turkey and for Kurds in Syria, in a way, they see both as part of a bigger Kurdish movement for accommodating Kurdish rights and gaining recognition of Kurdish identity, protecting Kurdish culture. The people who argue that the PYD and the PKK are the same uh, highlight the ideological links and also mention that the people who make decisions in PYD and the PKK are the same. It's two different branches of the same organization, if you like. That's how they say But PYD and, and the opportunities that the conflict in Syria has provided it have enabled the Kurds in Syria to achieve a 
much greater recognition than the PKK could ever do. For example, at the height of its power, PKK had something around 15,000, maybe 20,000 guerrillas. But at the moment, the YPG is something around 50,000. And the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, is something around 80,000. So the PYD or the YPG and the SDF are much bigger than, in terms of military forces, than the PKK. The relations between America and the YPG has been uh, cited by some leftists uh, as proof that the Kurdish project in Syria is not a revolutionary project. It's cooperating with an essentially imperialist power that nothing good will come out. I think these arguments miss the point of the threat that organizations like ISIS pose to the Kurds and to the international community as well. And the Kurds, in a way, had to draw on the support of the US forces in order to defeat ISIS. So cooperating with America in order to defeat ISIS doesn't contradict the Kurdish project. What they say, these critics, is that essentially America will dictate the terms to the Kurdish-led autonomous organization. And all this talk of a leftist, anti-capitalist rhetoric is just not going to happen. I mean, we don't know what will happen in future, but so far, the YPG, the SDF, they see America as a partner to defeat the threat posed by ISIS and such organizations, and they present their own project to the international community, which is about coexistence in Syria and a democratic Syria and a secular Syria. Dr. Genghis Gunas is an associate lecturer at the Open University in the UK. He is the author of The Kurdish National Movement in Turkey, From Protest to Resistance, and co-editor of The Kurdish Question in Turkey, New Perspectives on Violence, Representation, and Reconciliation. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Music